There are three readings today, the first of which is from Judges chapter 10, starting at verse 6 to verse 16, and it's found on page 254 of the Church Bibles. So that's page 254. Jephthah. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For eighteen years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help did I not save you from their hands but you have forsaken me and served other gods so I will no longer save you go and cry out to the gods you have chosen let them save you when you are in trouble but the Israelites said to the Lord we have sinned do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep the passage open in front of you, so uh, page 254, um, and on the back of the, uh, uh, the notice sheet you'll see there are some headings there, so you can follow through uh, what's, uh, what's being said, you can follow through the headings, do feel free to make notes if you want to, uh, and we are looking at uh, all of Judges 10, 11 and 12 today, so the story of Jephthah. Now, as David said, we're going to have three readings through the sermon. Uh, we're not going to read the whole of that lot. That would be a, a huge amount to do. So sort of like a, a stone skimming across the water. We're going to dip in at various points uh, through the story, and I will summarize other bits of it. But let me lead us in prayer as we come to this, uh, these passages in uh, Judges. Father, we praise you for your word, every bit of it. Thank you, Father, for the book of Judges and all that we have been learning all that you have taught us as we've been going through it. And we pray again today that you would quieten our hearts and humble us and help us to be ready to listen to you, to learn from your word, 
how we should relate to you and how we should relate to one another. Bless this time, we pray, and help us to respond to you. Amen. Our words can be very significant, can't they? Our words are very significant. With words, we open up to someone how we're feeling, what we're thinking. But words can also be deceptive, can't they? When we hear the words of Vladimir Putin, when we hear them saying there could be a ceasefire today, we are a bit sceptical, aren't we? Can they be trusted, those words? In today's passage, in these three chapters, we come to the next judge, it is Jephthah. And there is a theme running through the three chapters of spoken words. And we're going to see, and there is more that you could see in these chapters, but we're going to see three things about words. There are empty words, there are rash words, and there are proud words. Two of them, the first two, are about relating to God, speaking to God, and the last one is about speaking to one another. Empty words, rash words, proud words. Now we start in the passage that was just read before Jephthah turns up. Because the cycle of the judges starts again. We've seen this cycle over and over again. And our first point from this passage before Jephthah turns up is about empty words. So the cycle starts again. The Israelites do evil. They worship idols. That's what they've done many times before in the book of Judges. But this time, you may have noticed, they don't just worship an idol. They worship many idols. They are really overdoing it. Uh, Verse 6. It says there, they served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They had as many gods as... We have cafes in Surbiton. You can imagine if you were going through a town in, in Israel that just as we have, you know, Starbucks and Costa and this cafe and that cafe, they might well have had temples to this God and that God and shrines to that God and just so many of them. <coughs> and so the Lord is angry with them. Verse 7 tells us he is angry. And he hands them over, and this time not just to one nation, but to two nations. In verse 7, the Israelites in their distress call out to the Lord, but we see from God's response what he makes of their words. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 10, they cry out to God, we've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And when we hear that, we might well think, oh great, they've got it. They're turning to the Lord. Surely the Lord will receive them. Don't we assume that any who turn to the Lord, the Lord will of course receive them? There's a warning here, isn't there? Because the Lord replies, verse 11 uh, onwards, that actually their words are empty. He says, when these people, and he lists them, when they oppressed you and you cried out to me, did I not save you from their hands? Of course he did. But now, he says, you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go cry out to your gods, he says. 
to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You see, the reality is they're coming to God and they're saying, uh, we're sorry, we, we, we realize now we did the wrong thing. But all their temples and shrines are still there. It would be like an unfaithful husband pleading to return to his wife when he's still got his lovers lined up, ready to return to. Well, the people respond, verse 15. Oh, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. I wonder what you make of that response. Uh, the Lord has confronted them and said, I'm not going to rescue you. You keep returning to your lovers, your idols. I'm not going to rescue you. They say, oh, no, no, please. Do with us whatever you want, but just rescue us. How does that response seem to you? Does that seem genuine? One commentary says, telling, isn't it, that there's a condition on it. Do with us whatever you want, but just rescue us now. But what if God's purposes are actually the best thing for you is to stay where you are? After all, this is God who has brought this upon them for their unfaithfulness. Lord, do what we want. We'll give you anything. Just do what we want. And they do get rid of their idols. Verse 16, they got rid of the foreign gods. But it's interesting, isn't it, that it is not that, nor their words that moves the Lord. At the end of verse 16, he says he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Their words are empty. Well, there is something for us to learn here as well, isn't there? It's possible for people to come to God with empty words. Especially if when turning to God, it is in the context of a crisis. Now, not all people who turn to the Lord in a crisis uh, use empty words, but it is possible, particularly in a crisis, for them to be empty words. Dale Ralph Davis says this in his uh, book on Judges. He says, The theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course, God will help you in your need, that he is, helpfully enough, incredibly naive and hopelessly soft. He's like a great warm vending machine in the sky, into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. It is true that any and all can come to God. Jesus urges all to come to him. In the verse we read last week, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But there is a big difference, isn't there, between coming to Jesus on the basis that you're prepared to give him whatever he wants so that he gives you what you want, and coming to him genuinely, humbly, with completely empty hands, saying, Lord, I bow before you. One is manipulation, the other is worship. Oh, we pray, don't we, that in Ukraine there would be bomb shelter religion of a, of a sort. That there would be hundreds, thousands of people throughout that land turning to the Lord, turning today. But we want to pray it's genuine, don't we? That it's not empty words that are just there to, to, to say, get us out of this crisis, while all the time having... The old way of life, the old idols, 
ready to return to. Because that seems to be key, doesn't it? That the temptation is to call on God to respond while keeping those old idols ready to return to. Have we turned to the Lord in that way? Have we turned in genuine repentance, turning away from the old way of life to the living God, bowing before him, any can do it. So empty words that we need to be warned of. And we're then introduced to our next judge, to Jephthah. We better get to him, haven't we? And we're introduced to the people of Gilead. Now Gilead is part of Israel. And the Ammonites, one of the oppressing nations, are oppressing Gilead. And after some negotiations, and it is worth reading uh, this, but uh, uh, not just now. Uh, after some negotiations, Jephthah is appointed head of Gilead um, to go and help them against the Ammonites. And first thing he does is he tries to approach the leader of the Ammonites, the king of the Ammonites, um, to reason with him, to negotiate. And the leader of the Ammonites is fascinating. Read. He's, he claims... Of course, the land that the Israelites are in was his land originally. I mean, it seems so relevant, doesn't it? He says, that land was historically our land, so you should give it back to us peacefully. And um, Jephthah, in a really well-reasoned argument, argues against this. And again, it's worth reading. I mean, he actually says, he confronts it by saying, historically, it's just not true that it was your land before we took it. But read his argument. I'll let you do that another time. But at the end of that arguing, it says in chapter 11, verse 29, sorry, verse 28, it says, The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So after all that well-reasoned argument, the king just goes, nah. And then we see what happens next. So... I'm going to ask David if he would come and read the next part for us. So starting in chapter 11, uh, verse 29. Bibles, starting at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns, from Aroa to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Karamin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. 
When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Uh, okay, what are we to make of this? Our second point is rash words. Jephthah promises to the Lord to offer to him whatever comes out of his door to greet him. Well, we might think, well, maybe he was expecting something else to come out of his door. Maybe he thought, well, it'll be a chicken or or a cat or a dog or, you know, it'll be something else. Maybe he just wasn't expecting it would be a person. Except that... The actual wording that he uses, which isn't quite translated in this way, but the actual wording he uses suggests he thought it might be a person. Because he's, it, it, it suggests he's saying what, that he will sacrifice him as a burnt offering. He was expecting that it would be a person. You see, in trying to manipulate God to give him victory, Jephthah is willing to offer anything, even people, to the Lord. Why would he think this is okay? Well, you know those other gods that they were worshipping, that long list? That is how some of them were worshipped. Presumably Jephthah saw this, saw people sacrificing children to the false gods, and he adopted this into his way of worshipping the Lord, to try to persuade the Lord. Even though God had explicitly told his people, this is not what you are to do. He had said in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, he says, before they enter the land, he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You see, this reveals how much 
Jephthah has taken on board of the worship practices of the people of the land, the Canaanites. He has become thoroughly Canaanite, even in his worship of the Lord. They are rash words to try to manipulate the Lord. And do you not, I mean, do you see the self centeredness of it? It is horrible, isn't it? Even when his daughter, dancing to come out to greet him, when he sees her, he doesn't say, What have I done to you? He says, What have you done to me? He's so self centered. As if it's her fault. After a couple of months that she is given to go and mourn with her friends that she will never marry, he fulfills his vow. What should he have done at that point? Having made the vow to the Lord, what should he have done? Well, the answer surely is he should have broken the vow. Because to keep the vow would mean disobeying God's word. Now, what application is there for us here? Well, just in case it needs saying, don't imitate Jephthah. I doubt you're tempted to. But actually, there is something further for us to apply, isn't there? That we should worship the Lord the way he tells us to. We are not to guess what the Lord wants of us. And it's still possible that we might do things for the Lord and make sacrifices that are actually the opposite of what he wants. Maybe an example of this. Robert Murray McShane, who was a Scottish preacher, worked incredibly hard in ministry. So hard, in fact, that he he died young. Uh, It says, after graduating from Edinburgh University aged 14 in 1827 and leading a Presbyterian congregation of over a thousand at age 23 he worked so hard that his health finally broke before dying at age 29 he wrote God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride alas I've killed the horse and now I cannot deliver the message the horse being his body saying I broke the horse now I can't deliver the message I think there's regret there, isn't there? There clearly is. Saying, actually, I worked so hard, I sacrificed so much, but I've actually sacrificed my health, and now I can't do the ministry I should be doing. Are there sacrifices that we make which actually aren't the sacrifices that God has asked us to make? Now, we need to be careful, don't we? Of course. Um, Following Jesus is a whole life commitment. It's a whole life sacrifice. Just look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It is about your whole life lived for Jesus. But is it, are you sacrificing for him in the way that he wants you to? It is a radical call. But we need to make sure that we are looking to God's word to teach us how to make that sacrifice. Some have worked so hard in Christian work that their marriages lie in ruins and their families never see them, resulting in resentful wives and bitter children. Was that the sacrifice the Lord required? Of course, we've got to ask, how do we know what the Lord wants? And we've got to look in his word to see what the sacrifice is that the Lord requires of us. Well, there's one final episode. We've, we've seen um, uh, empty words and rash words. 
we're going to see one final episode uh, involving Jephthah. And it comes after the defeat of the Ammonites, and it's in chapter 12. So I'm going to ask David to come back and read the last section, so, uh, which is Judges 12, verses 1 to 7. This reading is found on page 256 of the Church Bibles. Jephthah and Ephraim. The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. And they said to Jephthah, Why did you go and fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If they replied no, they said, All right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. And Jephnah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Thank you, David. Well, there are proud words on both sides. Ephraim is, uh, is one of the tribes of Israel. So uh, the tribe, the Ephraimites, come to Jephthah and say, why didn't you involve us in this battle against the Ammonites? Why? You didn't let us join in. And Jephthah answers, well, I called, but you didn't answer. Whether he did call or not, we don't know. It's not recorded. But uh, he sort of says, I, you know, I tried, uh, and you didn't turn up. Um, interestingly, the Ephraimites, when they first come to him, say, I mean, it's massive overreaction, isn't it? You didn't call on us, so we're going to burn your house down over you. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? Um, and he, he replies, well, I did call, you didn't answer. And so he overreacts as well. I mean, there's proud words on both sides, aren't they? Because then the people of Gilead go and fight Ephraim. And what have you got here? This is Israel fighting Israel. This is uh, a battle within uh, Israel. God's people turning on one another. And why? Verse 4. Because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, you Gileadites, you're traitors, you're deserters. You left. And because of that, they go to war against each other. And the Gileadites win. 
and they subject uh, the Ephraimites. Well, they, they try to wipe them out. Well, they try to kill them, don't they? I mean, they, they do this thing where they capture the fords of the river, and if, if people want to cross, they say, are you an Ephraimite? And if they say no, uh, they say, okay, say Shibboleth. And it seems like Ephraimites can't say shh, so they say Sibboleth, uh, and therefore they're killed. What a terrible state Israel was in with a hunting down and killing of fellow Israelites. It's a reminder of the power of words, isn't it? How incredibly destructive they can be and how destructive pride can be. Words can stir up trouble, they can provoke, they can wind up. We know this, don't we? Sometimes we know exactly the right words. Often it's with siblings, isn't it? You know exactly the right words to say to someone to get them completely wound up, to get them furious. The book of James in the New Testament says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, setting the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. We need to be very careful how we use our words. And we need to be careful how we listen, how we react to what we hear. Sometimes we take offence at things we shouldn't, and we overreact. So how will we speak today? And how will we listen today? Will it be with pride or with love? Well, that's Jephthah. Used by God, but in the end, a very, very sour taste to the story. In fact, he is the middle of three judges who all, whose stories all end badly. Gideon, Jephthah and Samson all end on a bad note. Which all points us to, over and over again, the fact that they are incomplete judges. That a greater deliverer is needed. Each of them, through their faults and failures, gives us a longing for the great king. Who was to come? Jesus. Well, we've thought about words, empty words, rash words, proud words. What about Jesus? Described as the word at the beginning of John. And at one point, when Jesus uh, lost a lot of followers, he asked the twelve, how about you? Are you going to go as well? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so we end this sermon with positive words. Words of life. The Israelites and Jephthah's words ended in oppression and death. Jesus' words are the words of life. Of eternal life. What is it that we need What is it that the world needs above all else? What is it that Ukraine needs? What is it that Russia needs? Above everything else, they need the words of Jesus, don't they? Because his are the words of eternal life. We need to pray for them that the words of Jesus would come through to them and would be responded to. And we need to ask ourselves, will we come to Jesus? And respond to his words of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have seen in these passages 
different ways of using words, we pray that you would help us to come before you, not with empty words or rash words, but with sincere words and words of devotion to you, obedient to your word. And we pray you would help us to guard our tongues as well and our hearts and to be wise in the way we speak to one another. And we praise you for the words of Jesus, that his are the words of eternal life. We pray for us to respond to those words, uh, to those words to go round the world. We pray for the country of Ukraine and Russia. And we pray that the words of Jesus would spread, would be proclaimed and would be responded to. In his name we pray. Amen.